as yourself. That as is supremely important in understanding the second great commandment. Now, Jesus, he essentially says the same thing in other places, like in Luke, treat others the way you want to be treated. That's kind of like the modern English version of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's, it's communicating the same idea. But it's really, really, really important that we understand exactly what Jesus means when he says that we must love our neighbor as ourself. The most common way that this verse or this great commandment is applied in modern times, both individually and corporately, is uh, it's, it's usually used to kind of get people on board with charitable deeds, uh, acts of kindness, humanitarian efforts. It's a verse that's often weaponized, ironically, by people who tend to not be very pro-weapon. I once read an article in a popular, big-tent, evangelical, young, cool, hip Christian magazine that was making the Christian argument for open borders. After making a couple of political arguments, uh, the final blow in this article, the final, you know, like, and if that didn't get you, this will, was a quote of what we just read in Matthew 22. And after all, didn't Jesus teach us that we are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves? You know, and there you have it. Except, not really. You see, most neighbors usually erect fences or recognize property lines between themselves precisely as a means of loving one another, as a means of protecting good relationships. Normally, boundary lines are an expression of love. Now, I don't want to get off into the politics of, of, of the border, but I do want to say that uh, what I want to point out is that uh, this verse, which in its proper context, understood correctly, theologically, uh, it can serve us so well in thinking about how to love our neighbors. But what usually happens is that this verse is turned into what Jonah Goldberg calls a tyrannical cliché. A tyrannical cliche is a cliche that people typically use to kind of club you over the head to get you to agree with whatever position they're advocating for. So what does the second great commandment mean? Well, in order to understand that, you have to understand what the first great commandment means. So let's just remind ourselves one more time, what is the first great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Okay? What does that mean? What does it mean to love God like this? Swimming pools worth of ink have been spilled throughout the ages on the nature of love, from Augustine to modern bloggers on Tumblr. Uh, let me try to just boil this down for you real simple this morning. Uh, by talking about something that we can all understand and that we all love. Tacos. Let's talk about tacos. It's not even Tuesday. When you say that you love tacos, as you do, amen? I didn't hear everybody, but I'll keep going. When you say that you love tacos, what do you mean? Well, you mean a lot of different things the sum of which communicates the idea of love. 
So you mean that you desire them, that you crave them. You mean that you enjoy them, that you delight in them. You mean that you're willing to spend your time and money on them. When you say you love tacos, you mean that you prefer them over other lesser foods. You find them superior most often. You mean that you find satisfaction in them. At an existential level, this is what love is like, right? It means I enjoy this thing, I value this thing, I pursue this thing, I sacrifice for this thing, I prefer this thing, and I find my satisfaction in it. Now, arguing from the lesser to the infinitely greater, arguing from tacos to God, a sentence I never thought I'd say in the pulpit, loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, means that all of you is given over to God in that way. It means that He is the source and the aim of all of your joy. All of your joy comes from God because all you want is God. He is the thing that your soul thirsts after. He is the thing that your, your spiritual stomach is hungry for. And he's the only thing that your soul will find ultimate satisfaction in. To say it another way, God is the thing that you want most for yourself. To love yourself is to love God. Now, with this reality in mind, when you hear Jesus say, love your neighbor as yourself, we have a little bit more insight into what he means exactly. Because we actually know what it means to love ourselves. Loving ourselves means plunging ourselves into the fountain of God's love. And loving your neighbor as yourself means that once you're in the fountain, you hold your hand out and you call your neighbor to jump into the fountain with you. That was a little bit of, a little bit of heavy lifting. Loving yourself is to love God. Loving your neighbor is inviting them to love God too. Let's explore this at a more practical level now, which ironically may be a little bit trickier than the theological aspect. But at, exploring this at a, at, a, at a more practical level. There are literally 10 billion different ways that the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself could play out in any one of your lives on any given day, right? Just think about the vast web of relationships that you have with other human beings in your life, from the waitress at your favorite restaurant to the checkout guy at Kroger to your, the people who are going to be sleeping in the same house with you tonight to the people that you haven't talked to in quite some time but you still connect with on Facebook. And think about the millions of different interactions that you could have with any one particular person on any particular day. There's a lot of different opportunities for shades of gray to be involved in how you love your neighbor. With that in mind, with the complexity of the possibility of the application of this principle, you recognize that good, direct, straight-line application is kind of tricky. Especially since God already hit what I like to call the big five of loving your neighbor, right? You think about the Ten Commandments, the last five of the Ten Commandments, 
uh, you know, don't kill, don't steal, so on and so forth. That's kind of like the straight line, direct application of loving your neighbor as yourself. I don't want to die. I don't want someone to kill me, so I'm not going to kill somebody else. I don't want someone to steal my property, so I'm not going to steal somebody else's property. I don't want someone to covet my wife, so I'm not going to covet someone else's wife, right? That's kind of the big five of loving your neighbor as yourself. And so what, what this means is that what I can't do in this sermon is tell you exactly what it's going to look like for you to love your neighbor in every sphere of your life, with your coworkers, with your extended family, with your nuclear family, with your grandkids, with your friends from school, whether you should vote for this policy or oppose that bill or vote for this politician. There's just too much to say. I'm only one man. We only have as long as your attention span will give me. So for this morning, what I want us to do is to just drill down into one main application point, what I think is the most important application point, speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth in love. So if you're a note taker and you're looking for a point in the sermon, there it is. When you stop and think about it, speaking the truth in love to those outside of the church, that's really the the heart of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is Jesus commissioning the people of God to go out and to love their neighbor as themselves. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, listen, you belong to me. You've already given yourself to me. You love me. Now go out and tell the nations who don't belong to me, who don't love me, who have not been loved by me in a salvific way, go in and call them into that love. And there are a thousand different ways that we can carry out the Great Commission, but the central way, the main way, the the essential way that if we don't do this, then we're not actually carrying out the Great Commission at all, is telling the truth, speaking the truth in love. Just listen to the language of the Great Commission from Matthew 28, Jesus' final marching orders for the church. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, what's a disciple? A disciple is a student, right? Now, that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a holistic understanding of a student. But the way that you become a student is there's some kind of communication from a, a Jesus follower to a person who doesn't follow Jesus wherein they communicate the need for them to come and follow Jesus. Making disciples involves a a bunch of different good things, from caring for the poor to standing against injustice. But all of those expressions of love, all of those deeds of discipleship, all of those tendrils of the Great Commission are secondary to the plain communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ that calls men and women to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus for salvation. Now, when I say that those things are secondary, because we're evangelicals and we tend to only have like two speeds, we think it's either important or not important. When I say secondary, you may be hearing me say not important, and I'm not saying not important. All of these things are very important. They adorn the gospel. They, they, they decorate the gospel. They give the gospel an opportunity to shine forth even more brightly in a world of darkness. 
But if we don't preach the gospel, there's nothing for the good works to adorn in the first place. So I can plant a community garden. I can help support certain political policies that would be good for the community. I can teach my kids a little league team. I can form a neighborhood watch organization, if those are even still a thing. Uh, I can start a suicide prevention hotline. I can do a whole host of other things that are good, but that ultimately won't matter eternally if I don't tell my neighbor the truth. We have some organic carrots over here for you. And then you don't say anything about the reality of heaven and hell. It's backwards. And what exactly is this truth that we want our neighbor to know? What is the gospel? Well, friends, let's just revisit it. Let's just make sure that we're all on the same page. Every single person in this room, I'm sure, professes to be a Christian. Let's just make sure we all agree about what the gospel is that saves people. Because what typically happens is one generation believes the gospel, then the next generation assumes the gospel, and then the final generation loses the gospel. And we just can't let that happen, not in this local church. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. God the all-powerful, all-good, all-beautiful, all-holy, all-everything that is magnificent, He created this world, and He created it good. And then He created a special place for man in this world. He created us to be reflectors of His image, to be kings that ruled the earth, queens that governed this land in His absence. And he created us to enjoy him and his presence and all of this good creation and to subdue it and to do a thousand other good things while we were here on this earth. But then sin entered into the world. Our parents, Adam and Eve, received that sin. They actively rebelled against God. And ever since then, mankind has been rebelling against the God who made them. And because we rebelled and sinned against the God who made us, We've been cast out of his presence. Sin indwells us. The consequences for sin is death. And so we've been living in a world of death ever since then. But God, even from the moment that he cursed us, even from the moment that he, he punished us, he gave us hope. He promised that sin would not have the final word. And so he raised up prophets and kings and priests and judges. And every one of those men and women that he raised up promised us as God's people that sin and death would not have the final word. God's people suffered greatly as they were waiting for God to fix the sin situation in this world until one day, unbelievably, God stopped sending prophets. He stopped raising up kings. He stopped appointing judges. Instead, he came down himself. He did what no prophet or priest or king, no army, no poet, he did what no one else could do. He came down in the flesh. And he lived among us. The God who created us from dust inhabited the dust that he made us from. And he did something that we could never do. Not one single one of us. He lived a perfectly righteous life. 
in complete obedience to the cosmic laws of justice that his father put in play. He loved us. And we killed him. He came and he told us the truth about ourselves, about who God is, about this sin problem. He told us the truth. And we didn't want to hear it, and so we killed him. And we hung him on a cross, and we mocked him, and we despised him. But the promise of the gospel has always been since day one that sin and death would not have the last word. It seemed like sin and death would have the last word. Three days is a long time to be in the grave. But on the third day, he rose again. He burst forth glorious from the grave, conquering sin and death and hell and every evil power and authority that is controlling this fallen world even now. And he said, the battle's not over yet. I've won, but the battle's not finished. I'm going to leave and I'm going to come back and I'm going to set things right finally, once and for all. But until then, I'm going to leave my Holy Spirit with you. Now, while I'm gone, I need you to do what Adam and Eve didn't do. I need you to be my vice regents. I need you to rule well. I need you to be my ambassadors while I'm gone. I need you to live together. I need you to love one another. I need you to care for one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, stir one another up until the day that I come back to take you all home. And when I do, when I come back to get you, It'll all be worth it. All the pain, all the suffering, all the brokenness, especially that you endure as Christians, it will all be worth it because I am preparing a room for you in heaven that has oh, anything that you could ever want or need or imagine. You're going to get to go and be with me forever. And one day I will wipe away every tear and I will punish every evil. And I will establish my kingdom on the earth. This is the gospel story that all of our neighbors are a part of, whether they realize it or not, whether they accept it or not. This is the story of the universe. And the most unloving thing that we can do to our neighbors is to not tell them the truth about this story. To not tell them the truth about the reality of history that they are living through themselves. Now friends, you, you have to know that I understand that telling your neighbors the truth of the gospel, which is the good news, but it also involves bad news, like talking about sin and death and, and judgment. You have to know that I know that your neighbors may not perceive your communication of those truths to them as an act of love. They didn't perceive it when Jesus came and told them, right? A very small number of people were like, okay, yeah, I'm a sinner. All right, I'm tracking. Almost everyone else was like, who is this guy? Let's kill him. But not warning them, not telling them the truth, not telling them the, the hard parts is the truly unloving thing. Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 18 says it like this. This is God speaking. God says, If I say to the wicked, 
you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked man from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hands. God's saying, listen, if I've said that my judgment is coming and that these people are going to die because of their sins and you don't say anything to them about it, they're still going to die because they've still sinned, but now their blood is going to be on your hands because you were so unloving that you could not find it within yourself to tell them what they needed to hear. As Christians, our greatest concern cannot be with the world's perception of what we're doing. The world doesn't know what God's love is. The world doesn't understand what love is. The world is an act of rebellion against the love of God. God says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. Our response to that love was to hate the Son, kill the Son. The world is in rebellion against God's love. So it should not be any surprise to us then when we try to love the world by telling them the truth and they hate us. That's the reason why Paul in 2 Corinthians 16 says that we, the proclaimers of the gospel, are like the aroma of death to those who are dying. So your unsaved neighbor is not the best judge of what is and isn't loving. So we have to be concerned with actually loving our neighbors according to God's definition of love, regardless of how that's perceived or misperceived. Marvin Olasky, the former editor of World Magazine, he has an excellent book called The Tragedy of American Compassion. In this book, Olasky explores how the history uh, uh, of of how we in the U.S. went from essentially a community-based approach to poverty relief to a welfare state. And one of the themes that he explores in this book is the concept of something called a work test. In the early years of our nation, most of the citizens of our nation were either Christian or they had absorbed enough of the Christian worldview through osmosis that their approach to charity was largely based on principles derived from Scripture in general, and and Scriptures like this in particular. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. And so the vast majority of charity in the early days of our republic revolved around giving people the opportunity to work or at least giving them the opportunity to display a willingness to work. Even widows, even single mothers, even the elderly. Moreover, these early Christians, they had a view of work that was inextricably linked to the Imago Dei. They understood that to work is not something that's the result of the fall. They understood work to be something that God created us to do that predated the fall. They understood that as human beings, a big part of our identity, a big part of our dignity is bound up in our ability to work. 
Men, when they lose their job, when they get laid off, when they can't provide for their family the way that God has created them to do, you really see it begin to wilt them, right? Because there's, there's an intrinsic connection there. These, these early Americans, they understood that to give a man charity without giving him the dignity of work was not very charitable at all. Now, over time, and due to various influences and circumstances, this this ostensibly biblical view of charity came to be seen as unloving and even cruel. Now, in this book, Olasky highlights some of the most successful relief organizations in American history from long ago up to our own present day. Many of them Christian, but not all of them. And the one thing that almost all of them had in common was that they demanded something from the people that they were giving relief to. And they administered relief in a way that not only left human dignity intact, but also strengthened it. In contrast, many of the newer organizations and efforts aimed at helping to give poverty relief ended up doing not only more damage to the poor, but also more damage to the communities wherein the poor lived. Why am I sharing this with you? Sean's getting political today. Now, if you know me, you know that's not the case. Why am I sharing this with you? Because I want to illustrate the fact that what may seem like the best way of loving your neighbor can actually harm your neighbor. And the mere desire to love your neighbor is not good enough. The road to hell is paved with good intentions and bad ideas. And there are hundreds of millions of dead bodies that show how some visions of what it looks like to love the poor and care for your neighbor are not really that loving at all. I also want to illustrate the fact that what can seem unloving, like something like requiring a work test, may often be the thing that is most loving of all. So when the world calls us Christians a bunch of hateful bigots, which they will, which they are doing right now, for telling them the truth of the gospel, your first reaction should not be to redact the gospel or to edit the gospel or to sharpen off, uh, excuse me, to dull the sharp edges of the gospel. Friends, if you don't have a robust commitment to loving your neighbor by telling them the truth of the gospel as defined by God in his word, you will compromise the gospel and then we will lose the gospel. Do you not feel the pressure in the air? Do you not feel it? Have you not seen how many Christians with major platforms have come out and said, this or that thing, which is basically a complete undermining of the gospel that they claim to believe? Have you not felt that in recent days? Do you not understand how impossible it is going to be for you, even more so in the days to come, to hold any kind of significant political or social influence as long as you believe the Christian gospel? If you think that any man or woman in this country in the coming days is going to be able to tell the full gospel truth to their neighbor and not be hated for it or viewed as backwards or bigoted for it, Friends, you have got another thing coming. Jesus tells us to count the cost of following him, and I'm telling you the same thing. You better be prepared to count the cost. I, this church, 
better be prepared to count the cost. Many already have. Have you ever had someone uh, wound you in love? You know, like Proverbs 27, 6, it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Have you ever had someone love you enough to, like, wound you? When you're a kid, kids, this usually happens when you're being disciplined by your parents, right? Mom and dad are not happy about something you're doing, likely because uh, you're disobeying them and you're disobeying God. Even now, you're covering your ears. See, I've got to discipline you for that. Uh-huh. But as you get older, you get disciplined by your friends when they tell you the truth. They sit you down and they say, hey, man, I, I just got to tell you. I, and I got something hard to say to you. I remember when I first became a Christian, uh, I was asked to speak here and talk there and, 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 and preach at all these different places. And I had not been discipled at all. And so I did not know what I was doing. All I knew was that Jesus had saved me. And so I was, anybody who gave me an opportunity to go and shout that out, I was going to do it. But I didn't know that what I was preaching was essentially a false gospel. Now, when I finally found out that that was the case, after I had preached in maybe a hundred different schools and, you know, FCA clubs and, and youth groups and Sunday morning services, when I found out that what I was preaching was wrong and that what I was believing was wrong, I was furious. Furious. Why didn't somebody tell me? Why didn't somebody sit me down and say, hey, Sean, listen, man, I love you so much that I've got to say something to you that, that might that might rub you the wrong way, but I want you to hear me out. I got to sit down with some of those people a couple years later and ask them. Not, not, not a lot of them, just one or two, like, hey, you remember when I was at your youth group and I stood up for an hour and preached heresy? Um, and then we went out and ate Taco Bell after? How come you didn't say anything to me? How come you didn't tell me the truth? In so many words, what I was really asking was, I, I, I was your neighbor. Why didn't you love me as yourself? You had the truth. I didn't have the truth. You know the truth was good for your soul. It was building you up in Jesus. It was being productive for the kingdom. I didn't have the truth. Why didn't you love me as yourself? Even if it was difficult. I don't really know what the judgment day is going to be like. I, I wasn't fortunate enough to grow up in the church where they have the graphs that line the Sunday school wall with like the culminating event and all the final details of exactly what Jesus is going to say from Ezekiel and Revelation. But I tend to think that we'll have some greater clarity about our lives when we get to eternity, our successes and our failures. I also tend to think, based on parables like the rich man and Lazarus, that we'll have some awareness of the reality of hell uh, and the souls that are suffering there. In that parable from Luke 16, the rich man, he's able to speak to Abraham even though he's suffering judgment. I'm not, I'm not sure that we're going to be able to communicate that way, but I do wonder if we could, if we get to eternity, and if we can speak to those who are suffering eternal judgment, I wonder if any of them will say to us, why didn't you tell me? You knew. 
you knew. And you saw me. You saw me every day. You saw me once a week. You saw me every Thanksgiving. We were family. We were friends. We were co-workers. And you knew. And now here I am. And there you are. And maybe I would have listened and maybe I wouldn't have listened. But you didn't even try. You never said anything to me about Jesus. You talked to me about sports. You talked to me about politics. You talked to me about this, that, and the third. But you never said the thing that matters to to me right now most. You never spoke to me about eternity. Why? Why didn't you love me enough to tell me? Charles Spurgeon once said that if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. You know, buying your neighbor some groceries when they're recovering from surgery, that's great. It's fantastic. Helping that single mom by, by paying for her electricity bill, that's, man, that's really good kingdom work. I don't want to take anything away from that. Opening your home up to drug addicts. Amber and I have been around the road, been, we've done that a, a bunch of times. And it's not an easy thing to do. And it really does make Jesus look glorious. But what I found in my Christian life is all of those things seem to be exponentially easier than just plainly telling your neighbor the gospel. Why is that? Why is it so much easier for me to write a check for someone or to do a good deed for someone? Even if it's a really difficult good deed, why is that so much easier than just sitting down and saying, hey, we need to talk? We are so afraid, and I'm saying we on purpose. We are so afraid of being embarrassed, of being shunned, of being spurned, hated. Maybe worst of all, of being unpopular or uncool, being viewed as backwards or bigoted. But friends, when you think about loving your neighbor by telling them the truth of the gospel, if you're afraid or if you're discouraged or anxious or embarrassed, just stop. And think about the person who shared the gospel with you. Stop and think about the love of Christ that you have and the relationship that you have with him and what that means for your soul now and in eternity. And find a way to try to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray.